This is a special Sunday School lesson. It's a Sunday School lesson about understanding the power and purpose of communion. And before we dive into this lesson, let's begin with prayer. Lord, thank you for allowing us to come together to study your word, to learn more about you, and to grow in the grace and knowledge of who you are. I pray that you would help us through this lesson. We want to have a better understanding of communion and how it can connect us with you and your body, Lord. I pray help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be talking about communion and how we should remember his sacrifice Jesus asks us to come together in community and share in the Lord's Supper when we partake of communion. This lesson is written by Brother David Norris, and we are going to be um, reading some stories from him that he shared uh, that are particular to this lesson. So you'll hear me refer to that several times throughout this lesson. And he begins this lesson by sharing a story about a boy named Tyler. Now, this boy was about 14 years old, and Brother Norris at the time was 23. And he had, so he was a young man too, he had met Tyler and some other teenage boys who were hanging around the parking lot at the church he was working at, and he had spent a lot of time with them. He was there at this church preaching a revival as an evangelist, and he, after spending much time with them, um, he convinced Tyler and his friends to come to church on a Sunday. Now, the pastor of the church was pretty convinced that Tyler and his friends were the ones who had vandalized the church, and it's very possible he was right. And there was no class for them on Sunday morning, so Brother Norris created his own Sunday school class, and the boys stayed for church after that. And that is when Tyler said that he wanted to take communion. The pastor let Brother Norris know that it would be his responsibility to make sure that this 14-year-old boy understood what he was doing. He asked Tyler, why do you want to take communion? Tyler started crying and he replied to Brother Norris, because Jesus died on the cross for me. Brother Norris tells us that there should be minimum standards for people to be welcome at the communion table. And he was not attempting to eliminate safeguards. But when Tyler wept as he spoke of what Jesus did, that was enough for Brother Norris. Tyler was heading in the right direction, the direction of the cross. And like the prodigal's father who ran to his wayward son, the Lord was reaching out to those coming towards him. We're going to look at communion the right way. Jesus, he never stopped teaching. Even at the Last Supper, just hours before his crucifixion, Jesus used the food and drink before him to teach eternal truths. It was the Passover, a meal first eaten by slaves in Egypt, anticipating redemption. In Exodus chapter 12, God instructed them to slay an innocent lamb and wipe its blood on their doorposts to protect their households from the angel of death. The meal included bitter herbs, 
forever after reminding the Jewish people of their slavery in Egypt and of the deliverance God would bring. And the flat bread reminded them of suffering and was eaten in anticipation of deliverance. You may remember some of this from our Easter week activities. Now, it was approximately 700 years after the Jewish people were delivered from Egypt that the prophet Isaiah drew in part from the imagery of the Passover to tell of a greater and even more universal deliverance. He wrote in Isaiah 53, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah prophesied not of a lamb, but of a man who would be sacrificed for redemption, for our redemption. The Lord would call a man to suffer for the sins of the people. He would be wounded, bruised, and sacrificed to atone, to pay for sin. Jesus knew he was that man of whom Isaiah prophesied. He could declare with certainty when he picked up the flatbread at the Passover meal, this is my body which is given for you. And then he picked up the cup and proclaimed, this is my blood which is shed for you. We know that story well, the story of the First Communion. So what is your earliest memory of taking communion? Paul would go on and affirm the words of Jesus at the Last Supper, noting that Jesus told those who would afterward partake to do this in remembrance of him. And Paul would further explain that through the Lord's that though the Lord's Supper would not be taken at every service, communion was to be central. Paul demonstrated this by his insistence that the church get it right. The Lord is still concerned that we get it right. We can do so by looking at the Lord's Supper in the right way. And in order to fully appreciate communion, we're going to look at it from four different directions today. Inward, outward, forward, and backward. Doing so helps us to participate in this practice from God's perspective. That's a good perspective to take. First, let's take an inward look. The truth is that some people are fearful. They are afraid to take communion because Paul warned against taking communion unworthily. But we have to look at the language and we have to understand it in the context of the Corinthian church. And that's who he was writing to when he wrote that. And they had a lot of problems. Members of the Corinthian 
assembly included self-righteous Jewish Christians, worldly new converts, and those who deemed themselves so spiritual that they could make their own rules. And these Christians had become selfish and lived with a sense of entitlement. They got drunk at the love feast and judged others as less than themselves. There was a lot going on, a lot of issues to deal with. Apparently, there were some church members even participating in the debauchery of pagan temples, and they later came to receive communion with the church. Paul spared no words in correcting the church on these points. He was most pointed on those who believed Christian liberty gave them the license to participate in pagan rituals, in sin, continually. And he would write to them, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of the demons of demons. For Paul, the one who takes for granted the communion table and eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Communion calls us to repentance, and repentance means we're not going to continue in what we were doing that was sin, that was displeasing to the Lord. Repentance means we're going to turn away from it. And Paul was dealing with this issue, that people were not turning away from sin, but that they were participating willingly, knowingly sinning, and then coming to take the communion meal. Therefore, before we take communion, we have to look inward. As Paul wrote in preparing to receive the Lord's Supper, let a man examine himself. And we have to remember something else. If we measure ourselves against some artificial standard of perfection, that is also wrong. Repentance is not hard. It is turning in the right direction to a God who delights to forgive. The standard of communion is not perfection, but it is humility and contrition. It is easy to do because forgiveness is free. All we have to do is ask. And so we begin by looking inward. And then we take an outward look. The word communion says it all. We are communing with the Lord and with our brothers and sisters in the church. In the original language, the word that most aptly describes such a relationship is the Greek word, word koinonia. It is often translated fellowship, though there is not really an English word that would tell us the depth of this meaning of the word koinonia. The Bible in the Bible, koinonia contains the idea of sacrifice, of a gift, of giving, and in the deepest sense, serving each other. Indeed, it describes love in its deepest and most pure form. In John 13 through 17 at the Last Supper discourse, Jesus not only offered incredible revelation of his identity and what he would do, but he also gave his people a principle to reach the world. Jesus had a simple plan. It started with the fellowship the Lord desires at the communion table. Put simply, God's plan is that we love one another. Jesus declared others would know we are his disciples because they would see us loving each other. Further, that deep commitment would make them want to have the same thing. Brother Norris shared this story 
in this lesson. It was is he he said this. When I was in my early 20s, we were evangelizing in Grand Forks, North Dakota in February. Temperatures dipped below 0 at night and there was a lot of snow. It was a Saturday night and amazingly, people traveled from other churches to be there for service. One pastor drove 200 miles and he would drive back that same evening to be home for his Sunday morning service. When he embraced the pastor of the church, the depth of joy to be there radiated from each of them. And I decided I had a lot to learn about the kind of love to which God was calling me, Brother Norris said. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 8 says this, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It isn't provoked. It doesn't think evil. It doesn't rejoice in sin, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. What a way to love that God is calling us to. A lot of times we think about these scriptures as marital love or love between a man and a woman. That is, that it, it, this goes so far beyond that. This is how we are to love one another and to relate with one another in these ways as Christian brothers and sisters. Then we need to take a forward look. We look inward, we look outward and forward. Communion reminds us that as the church, we live in an in-between place. It's like that song, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. We need to be reminded that right now, living in this world, we are just passing through. Some of the very last words of Jesus were a prayer offered on behalf of those who are following him. He prayed that his disciples would one day be with him in heaven, beholding his glory. The blessings of being in the church are wonderful, but the blessings of heaven will be even greater. Paul said concerning taking communion, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Our fellowship with the Lord and each other in communion can most closely anticipate what the Lord has prepared for us when he returns. We can gain a clearer sense of this if we visit a service from the end of the first century. And Brother Norris has given us um, a segment from his book, Life, Death, Death, and the End of the World to Look at. And this is a look at a first century service or what the Church of Acts may have encountered encountered at one of their meetings. So I'm going to read a portion from his book. It says, The sun would not be up for another 20 minutes or so, but they were all gathered in the court, some 40 or 50 of them. A visitor named Marcus looked around at an odd collection of people singing and praying. The well-to-do sat next to the lower class, men with women and slave with free. Ethnic groups that would never otherwise mix socially were intermingled, clearly content. What are they so happy about, asked Marcus, the visitor that had come with Andreas. It's the first day of the week, said Andreas. But you come to this house more often. Well, certainly, but this is our special day. For it is especially on Sunday that we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Somewhere from the other side of the court, someone began singing a psalm. It was not intrusive. 
Others joined in. Marcus gradually became aware of how the entire house took up the psalm and became lost in worship. Though it was strange to him, he liked it, and he whispered to Andreas, It's so otherworldly. Andreas smiled. When we worship, we enter heavenly places with Christ. Marcus was confused, and he asked, Is it a mystical journey of some sort? Andreas patiently whispered his response, more like anticipating a journey. When the Lord filled us with the Spirit, this is our earnest, the very guarantee that He will soon return for us and take us to be with Him. A song was started in another part of the room, and in response, Andreas prayed quietly to himself in another tongue, not Greek. Indeed, this was no language with which Marcus was familiar. Later, a man started speaking more formally at the front of the room. We are pilgrims on this earth, he began, like the Jews exiled and waiting for the Lord to bring redemption. So we anticipate Christ's return. Jesus said to take this bread and wine until he returns. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, someone shouted as a smattering of amens quickly followed. They shared bread and all drank from a single goblet, each repeating as it, as it passed, Let the Lord come and let the world pass away. What does that mean? said Marcus. We want the Lord to be present in our communion, and it is our solemn prayer for Jesus' soon return when we can fully participate in fellowship with Him, not only spiritually, but truly sitting at God's right hand, said Andreas. And we ask, are we looking forward to the coming of the Lord? As we saw in that picture of the Church of Acts, we've got to look forward when we participate in communion. And we have to look backward. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, it involves all the senses. We taste, we touch, we smell, we hear the words, and together we view the elements as we join together in worship. Further, while these physical things are taking place, there is something mentally and spiritually taking place as well. We reflect on the love that would take Jesus to the cross. Genuine love is always costly. Jesus did not die for a people who deserved it. He died for sinners. Jesus also does not stop forgiving when someone fails him. Deep fellowship requires deep caring, and deep caring will inevitably lead to deep disappointment or even deep betrayal. But that was not a reason for Jesus to stop loving. That is what he taught us. Ask any parent or pastor, ask any husband or wife. If covenant runs deep, getting hurt is inevitable. Jesus paid the greatest sacrifice for the least worthy. And hours before he went to the cross, Jesus shared this. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. In John chapter 15, verse 13. There is a story that's been told of two seven-year-old brothers who shared a blood type so rare one boy was required to give a quart of blood to ensure his brother's survival. His parents had explained it all to him, 
telling how special it was that he could give a quart of blood to save his brother. It was only when he asked a question that they realized he did not fully understand. Will it hurt? he asked, lying on the bed as the nurse readied his arm for a needle. It will hurt just a little when she puts the needle in, said his mom, but it won't be too bad. The boy shook his head. No, I mean, will it hurt when I die? At that moment, the mother realized her son mistakenly thought he was giving his life, not only his blood, to save his brother. Yet, he was willing to do it. He just wanted to know if it would hurt. In 1 Corinthians 13, two chapters after Paul corrected the Corinthian church about communion, he introduced them, introduced the repeated theme of charity or divine love. Paul was speaking of a deep love, as we read earlier, explaining the basis of all real communion in a beautiful prose. Love never fails. Even when we cannot get along with someone, love is kind and it doesn't brag. It doesn't keep score. It's not competitive. Jesus was the living example of this, giving himself to imperfect men who would fail him more than once. But he was willing to do it. And the church is built on such love. Love that is the super glue of the New Testament. Jesus prayed. His disciples slept. When he woke them and they saw the danger, first they considered fighting back, but then they ran. By the time Jesus was arrested, he stood alone. But Jesus never stopped loving. He greeted Judas as a friend reached out to both Pilate and Peter, and even loved the Roman soldiers who mocked him while pressing the crown of thorns into his skull. Jesus hung on the cross alone and prayed for the very people who mocked him and laughed at him. Ultimately, it is this act, the greatest single act of love in the cosmos, that we remember as we take communion. Our salvation rests on this act. The sacrifice served as the starting place for true fellowship. Ultimately, only this singular act holds us imperfect brothers and sisters together. And for this reason, we are compelled to reflect when partaking of the Lord's Supper. We are looking inward. We are looking outward. We are looking forward and backward to celebrate who Jesus is and what he did, what he is doing and what he will do. And that is why we take communion. And that is why it is so important. Years ago, a missionary to India, Fern Sism, told of one crusade when she was laying hands on people to receive the Holy Ghost. Suddenly, she was repulsed. The woman for whom she would pray next had leprosy. As she anticipated, when Fern laid her hands on the lady's head, it was soft in her fingers sank in. The Lord dealt with her about her attitude, and she began to see things from his perspective. This lady ran from the crusade to the home of her family members to tell them about the Holy Ghost. And when they saw her coming, they shouted for her to stay away. But the woman shouted back something that G- about Jesus and receiving the Holy Ghost. Stay away, they continued. You are a leper and you don't belong here. She protested with words they could not yet understand. She simply said, 
but Jesus made me beautiful. None of us comes to the cross with an intact life. We all come broken and needing a Savior. Jesus makes us beautiful. We can't forget where we came from. And communion brings us once again face to face with Calvary. As we partake in the Lord's Supper, Jesus cleanses us again, teaches us to truly love one another, and calls us to look forward to full and unmitigated fellowship anticipating and celebrating the future that Jesus had prepared for us. Let's thank him for that. God, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the work that you did for us there. And I thank you, oh God, that we can search our own hearts, Lord Jesus, and that you already know what we'll find. And yet you are here waiting for us, waiting to meet us, waiting to forgive us and offer us that gift. I pray let us consider one another and love one another as you have loved us, Lord. And let us look forward to your coming. Let us look forward, Lord, to the time we are with you, sitting beside you. We love you and we glorify you, O God. We thank you that we can remember you every day and the work that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.